one woman told me about someone trying to set her hijab on fire. You have women who could have lived had they had access to health. Young men are like routinely excluded from civilian death counts. They are the most vulnerable to recruitment, but when they arrive at the border, they are the most threatening category of migrant to arrive. I, as a human being, will not stand for this type of behaviour. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Peace and Gender podcast. My name is Angie Tees Evanson, and today with me in the studio, I have Sarah Niner. Sarah, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes. Well, you already know my name. Uh, I teach <laughs> anthropology in the School of Social Sciences at Monash, mm. uh, and all of my research work has pretty much been in a place called East Timor or Timor-Leste. Uh, I've done lots of research there around political leadership and also gender relations, gender roles and relations, and how that's working in the what we call a post-conflict environment. Mm, of course. So just for a bit of context for some people, if you were to summarize what happened with occupation of Indonesia and Portugal in like a short way, could you do that? Well, when I talk about gender relations and how they've been influenced... Um, I talk about 400 years of Portuguese colonial association because the Portuguese were quite a weak colonial power. So there was different periods where they had less control and more control. Uh, and then once they had their revolution, they withdrew or they were in the process of withdrawing from East Timor in 1975 when the Indonesians took this opportunity of this vac political vacuum to military, uh, a full-scale military invasion. And they were there for 24 years. It was quite a brutal, uh, violent uh, invasion and occupation. Um, but the Timorese kept fighting. They had a really strong resistance. And uh, with the fall of Suharto in Indonesia in 1998, they were able to then negotiate a ballot of independence uh, that the UN oversaw and 78% of Timorese voted for independence. Mm. So since that time, they've, they've uh, finally got to be an independent nation. And we're going to talk a bit, about, a bit more about this occupation by Indonesia later on. But before that, I was just wondering if you could tell me how you got interested in Timor-Leste. It was a bit of an accident, really. When I finished doing my undergrad degree in literature and writing, we went on a backpacking trip around Southeast Asia and we got the cheapest flight we could get out of Australia, which was Darwin Kupang in West Timor. And there were four of us and we ended up travelling. We love West Timor so much we decided we would keep going and see the rest of the island, not realising the full extent of the occupation and how uh, difficult things were there. So we crossed the border and had a difficult time crossing the border, actually, even though it wasn't really a border. It was all the same country, but it was treated. They really checked us out anyway. And we got to Dili and just found a completely different environment to what we'd experienced, the friendliness of West Timor, and that there weren't a lot of people on the streets and we ended up being followed and kept being told we couldn't do things and couldn't go places. And we just got this sort of very oppressive feeling about the place. And 
we left and went, kept travelling. And then by the time we got back to Australia, there on our return, really, there was a big massacre that had happened in Dili, which is referred to often as the Santa Cruz Massacre because it happened in a cemetery, the Santa Cruz Cemetery in Dili. When we were in Dili... What what we didn't know when we were there that we found out later was that it was had it was a real crackdown period because there were negotiations going on at the UN level with Portugal to send a parliamentary delegation to visit Dili, and the resistance was planning all sorts of um, protests to happen while they were there under kind of the UN uh, protection. Um, so there there was a lot of activity going on. And we just sort of cruise into town, not realising any of this, and just but feel the real uh, terrible oppression of the place. And at some point, the the negotiations in the UN broke down and the Indonesians said they weren't going to let the Portuguese come. So one of these demonstrations happened and they arrested a couple of people and they um, one of these young guys was killed. And so this wasn't as much a protest was as his sort of funeral procession procession to the Santa Cruz Cemetery, which is right slap bang in the middle of Dili. But during the procession, some of the students uh, put up some banners and the Indonesian military just, um, once they got to the cemetery, sort of had them trapped in the cemetery and they just um, opened fire. And I don't know, something like uh, 200 students were killed. No one knew for a long time how many people were killed because they just took the bodies and and dumped them and they're still recovering them, actually. So there was a lot of forensic uh, science that happened to try and find these bodies afterwards. But this is all after 99, so this is a long time. So people went missing and... There were people, including Shanana Guzmao and others who are living sort of in underground bunkers in Dili in hiding, that were compiling lists of those students at the time and, and getting that information out. But what happened was there was a couple of foreign journalists there that recorded the the, the footage of the students um, being shot and a couple of them, who I've met since, actually smuggled the the footage out, and it was released on all the news channels around the world, uh, and it caused this huge international furor, and it really changed uh, the resistance movement. Like the the exposure that they got really notched up a gear that whole struggle. So the solidarity movements just increased in number. Like, and I was one of those people that that joined that year in 1991. And uh, I just ended up being um, sort of sucked into the solidarity movement in Melbourne because Melbourne has the biggest population of Timorese in Australia. And there was also a really big, strong uh, activist uh, solidarity group around them of Australians and so from that year, which was 1991, I ended up being part of that solidarity movement and meeting lots and lots of Timorese people who now uh, run the country in Timor. Uh, so when, after the ballot, and there was a lot of violence that happened uh, around the ballot, and I ended up going up to Timor after that to help 
with the rebuilding process. So the Timorese that I'd been working with for a really long time in Melbourne, um, eight or nine years, uh, invited me to sort of go up with them and establish one of the first uh, NGOs, Timorese NGOs. And we we started doing a lot of different activities then. And then I got involved with the Alola Foundation, which was a women's advocacy foundation, which led to the research that I've been doing since then. I wanted to go a bit back to um, the occupation and mm-hmm. what happened during the occupation, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. from what I've read in your papers and in general, um, women played a big role in the occupation and helping the resistance movement. Yep. So they were, the women were helping the resistance movement, supplying them with like food and clothes and stuff. How does that play into what you, what it's like today, for instance? The women were a core part of the resistance movement. Um, they undertook a lot of different activities from actually carrying weapons and being part of the resistance army, Falantil, to being in the support bases of those military battalions and uh, making sure there was enough food and clothing and uh, medicine, money. Uh, So kind of feeding that army. They were also uh, a lot, a bigger part of the civilian resistance than, than men often because the Indonesians didn't suspect women as much as they did men, so they could get away with a bit more. So when messages need to be couriered between different groups in Timor, women and young women would often do it, you know, collecting information and collecting all the necessary uh, supplies that the army did. So women were a big part of that civilian resistance. Um, And I think... Shanana Guzmao, the leader of the resistance, puts them at about 60% of the resistance. So they played a really big role that hasn't been fully recognised since then. Uh, A lot of the accolades and uh, the veterans' benefits have gone to the men that led the resistance army and the men that were in that Valentil that sort of made that sacrifice of, of fighting. It was really hard to get any women recognised as being part of that army. And in fact, in the end, they wouldn't recognise it and they made a special category of, ve- of veterans recognition for women that served with the army. They, they couldn't get the full benefits. Um, so it was a very contested project and it was very hurtful, I think, to a lot of women who had really sacrificed as much as the, as the men had for them to then to have the men turn around and say to them, but, you know, you're in this second-class category. And I, I have interviewed women that have, that have said that. So the, and the effect of that really has been that women don't have as full a status in society as men do. Uh, and this is ha- I think this is a, a common thing to happen after war, that the status of people in society is tied to their war record or what they did during the war and how hard they fought for that, well, in the case of Timor, that nation, that new nation to, to be born and that therefore the lack of women's recognition of service has had an effect on their status in the, in the post-war society.
It's really interesting, though, because I, I see I have seen that in other places as well, that the efforts during war really resonate later on. Mm. But it's so interesting because they did so much. Yeah, they and did so much. And I, and I think there is it's quite painful for a lot of women that, that did. There, I did interview one woman who's now a parliamentarian called Bisoy, and she said it was really hard for us when our brothers wouldn't wouldn't recognize that we had done as much as them it was it was quite painful i think uh and the fact the other effect is that a lot of this recognition comes with financial compensation that women haven't benefited from as much as men and therefore their economic status is lower as well so there's a there's a sort of there's all sorts of social and cultural and symbolic capital capital related to your recognition, to the recognition of war service um, or service to the nation. And then there's a lot of economic benefits as well and that flows from those other forms mm. of capital. And women have tried really hard and just done quite an amazing job at documenting their service and they've published and self-published and small NGOs have done it, published stories of women's lives from from the occupation, but it shouldn't be up to them to do in that way. It should actually be done by the state for them, I think. So the the hierarchy that was created after after the war still echoes today. Um, it's still a prevalent issue today, isn't it, amongst like the gender imbalance yep. in East Timor? So the, the, the leadership of the country is very male, and it's very dominated by those sort of war heroes from the from the struggle against Indonesia. So we can see in the top echelon are those are those men, and there's been a lot of conflict between them, which is which has held up development in the country because mm. they're military. They've been created by this conflict, by this violent conflict, and that's what they know. And it's it's difficult to run a peace peaceful democracy with people that have had those experiences at the helm. So I was just wondering if um, you could tell me a little bit about the specific work you've done in Timor-Leste regarding these gender imbalances that are existing today. So I didn't start off as an anthropologist. I started off um, writing a political biography for my PhD and I wrote the biography of Shanana Guzmao, who was the the top leader uh of the resistance and the and the resistance struggle, and once I'd written that, I realised that I was actually contributing to this gender imbalance by the glorification of the of the you know, the sort of premier male leader, and by that time his Australian wife uh, had helped set up a Timorese women's organisation called the Alola Foundation, and I ended up getting involved in that with her and the Timorese women that were that were part of the setup of it and i i think i wanted i somehow felt and i don't think i realized till later that i wanted to reverse that imbalance that i'd helped set up and i helped organize an economic empowerment program for women craft producers so we ended up working with a lot of women weavers in Timor, helping them find a market for their products. 
at some point, I started thinking of myself as an anthropologist and that spending time with people and talking and being part of their world for extended periods was a much better way to be able to explain what was going on there than sort of taking these top-down approaches and talking to half a dozen men in the country, which is what the political scientists who write about Timor basically do. They talk to the same 10 men and somehow think they can explain what's going on in the country by by that. And I just find their analysis incredibly superficial. Well, especially because um, obviously the women in Timor-Leste, they have a completely different lived experience of what it's like being there um, than these men. Mm. And um, we often on this podcast talk about like what the main issue is at the moment. So like in... in East Timor. Um, what what is the, the issue that women are facing today? What's the main problem? Um, Poverty. Mm. Uh, I, I, because when research has been done about domestic violence is a big problem there, as it is everywhere in the world. I'm not saying the Timorese are any different, but women will say, "I can put up with that, but I can't put up with not having enough food to feed my children." So please. Uh, the programs that we really need are economic empowerment programs. They they don't call it that, but we need uh, livelihoods programs to help us increase our income, increase our crop yields, and that sort of type of activity, economic activity, because it's the worst thing is not being able to provide for your children, and not being able to have enough money to send them to school and and keep them healthy. Half half of Timorese children uh, suffer from malnutrition and another per- part, a high percentage of that group uh, suffer from stunting from it. And I think that's what's the big issue for the 75% of women in Timor that live in the rural districts, live as subsistence farmers. If you have a bad year, you, you know, there's not, there's not enough food for people to have more than one meal a day, and uh, I mean, I don't know about you, but that would that would break my heart. Mm. And I that so th- I think that's the main issue for women. It's it's poverty and malnutrition, um, and that's what they want help with. As I said, they they can put up with the the violence. I mean, not that that affects every woman, but it, it's something that women tolerate as they do everywhere around the world, to keep their families together. Uh, but it's the it's the poverty that women want help with. So when you've been in Timor-Leste, you've obviously, you know, you've felt their stories because you've talked to them, you've been with them for a longer period of time. I asked about this a bit in the beginning as well, but sometimes it's good to get a bit more stories um, mm. to personalize it for people listening. So when it comes to poverty, for instance, was there a woman you spoke to who expressed this to you and who's been through something particular? Is there a story that kind of comes to mind? There was an older woman who I met in the um, displaced persons camp, the IDP, internally displaced persons camp. So in 2006, there was a big violent conflict, internal violent conflict between these elite men that that descended into this much wider uh, conflict so that tens of thousands of people ended up in internally displaced people's camps um, because people were burning each other's neighbourhoods and things. 
And there's, oh, we went out there one day, so this would have been in about 2007 or 8, because people were in them for a long time. It took a long time to resolve the issues so people could return home. And some people had no homes to return to. But we went out to this camp where Alola had set up uh, an economic empowerment program where women were making things um, in, again, that they could sell. But it was an incredibly depressing place. and It was very muddy and, you know, just rows and rows of tents and stuff. But these women were in this, they'd built, you know, a, a shelter and they were in there sewing. Um, but there was an older woman that I spoke to that really, she, she told me her story of how they'd had their house burnt down and uh, she was there, her children, I think, had returned to the districts and she was she was stuck there, I guess, uh, with her much older husband because they were sort of too old to endure the hardships that it would have taken to get back to where they were from. Um, and I just, her story was, uh, I mean, it was very sad. Um, and I was able to to use some of the things she told me to promote some of the work of the women in the Alola Foundation around that time. Something that's come through quite a bit in this podcast is going out and seeing the world being important. Would you would you reckon that's important for people now to still explore and and f- go to places that are post-conflict um, environments instead of just sitting online and looking everything up like many people do? Well, it's interesting. I think when you talk to people and they talk about um, the the how they had learned some of the greatest lessons in their life, it's the, it's through experience learning and it's about travelling. And as much as jaded as I am sometimes about tourism and, and travel and the effects of, the, of that on a lot of parts of the world, when I think about how I learnt things, it really was. I mean, Timor, really, that trip to Timor changed my entire life uh, and... It, it wouldn't have happened any other way. I, I mean, I we did that that trip did open our eyes to so much about that place and and the rest of Southeast Asia. But I yeah, as much as I'm I'm critical of how a lot of travel and tourism happens now, uh, I do think it's an incredible way of learning. But the other thing about the young people in Timor is that a lot of those young people who want to do things differently are people that have had education and some sort of exposure or experience to globalisation or to new ways and different ways of doing things. The groups that were a lot more uh, wedded to the traditional ways of doing things not that there isn't not that women don't have some strong roles within that traditional customary world but the people that hadn't had any exposure beyond that which which is a minority now in Timor uh they were the ones that were less willing to to change it was it was the young people with experience of of going to the capital or or being educated or or, you know, even being online. I mean, being online for some people is exposure to, to different ways of, of thinking as well. Thank you for coming in today. I really appreciate it. It was, uh, It's been an honor being able to talk to you one-on-one. So, yeah, thank you so much. It's, it's a pleasure. It's, it's good to talk about it. It's good to talk about these things. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Peace and Gender. My name is Andrea Tees Evanson, and this podcast was produced for Mojo News and Monash Gender, Peace and Security.